Welcome to Redesigning High School, our little podcast for parents and anyone else who might be interested in how we can remake school for the benefit of students. My name is Terry DeBow, and I'm the director of special projects here at Hawken and teach some English classes. We wanted to take a second to introduce the uh, Meet the Team episodes. Um, in an earlier version of this, I said we'd run the same intro for all four of these uh, little episodes, but that seemed like a bad idea after I thought about it. So if you want to hear more about uh, the team and some of Julia Griffin's thoughts about the process of creating the team uh, that's going to design and then implement the Mastery School of Hawken, suggest you uh, listen to the first of these episodes. Um, but uh, let's just get to the team. So these are some fantastic people, and we really hope you enjoy these episodes. All right, Nick, uh, welcome to uh, Redesigning School, our little podcast. Uh, we're excited to have you. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, including uh, your last name, which is... Sure, yeah. Nick Cheadle, uh, like Don Cheadle, the famed actor. Right. He, his his <laughs> rise is... to fame changed my life in elementary school. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that is how I remember your last name. <laughs> it takes two steps to get to your last name. There you go. Yeah. Uh, Nick, Nick Cheadle. So uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, I just moved to Cleveland from Pittsburgh. Uh, finished, my, finished up some coursework uh, in a PhD program in second language acquisition. And then before that, I uh, was in K-12 independent school teaching world. Uh, a couple different jobs teaching uh, at a boarding school, French and French and Spanish in high school, and then before that, uh, taught middle school French and Spanish. Um, and then, but between those times, around those times, uh, have spent quite a bit of time abroad, which has been great. So I got the chance uh, to live in Colombia for a year, teaching English at university. Uh, taught English in France for a year at a high school outside of Paris. Um, gotten to just. Travel a lot, did a master's, um, living in Spain for a year. So I've had the chance to kind of uh, go back and forth from living abroad for a year, coming back for a year, and somehow in that process decided that I actually wanted to be a teacher uh, and then started teaching in the U.S. That's great. Yeah. And in, in Cleveland. In Cleveland, yeah. So uh, actually my last job uh, was also nearby Cleveland, and it was over Christmas. Uh, my grandfather, who my mom's family is from Youngstown, Ohio. Not, not too far from here. Uh, and I got an email from the school and was like, oh, okay, I don't know. I don't know where this is. I don't know anything about it. And my grandfather was like, Nikki, that's a great school. You got to apply. Uh, and then I ended up living like 45 minutes down the street from my grandparents, which was lovely. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, which was that somewhere in the middle of all the all your journeys and travels and and studying, you realized you wanted to be a teacher. Was there a moment for you or a progression of experiences? Tell us a little about that. Yeah, for sure. So I think uh, right after undergrad is when I went to Columbia to teach. And honestly, at that point, it was just a way to go abroad uh, sure. and do a cool thing. Yeah. And I got to teach at university. And then I came back and actually worked for uh, a nonprofit in Atlanta where I grew up. Um, working with, I like pretty much ran a mentoring program for first and second generation uh, immigrant and refugee youth in the city. And we would match them with um, folks in the city who had similar cultural and linguistic backgrounds. Uh, and so that's, you know, I kind of envisioned going into the nonprofit world. Um, and I realized that I really didn't like all of the desk jobby parts of, of that job. Um, but I loved the chance to run workshops and to interact um, with the mentor-mentee pairs, um, and essentially being more in a, in a teaching role like I was previously. And so that's what kind of initially made me think that I wanted to somehow interact. 
I really like interacting with other people. So being in an interactive <laughs> role uh, in which I could facilitate some kind of like growth and development and change. That was the exciting thing working with these mentor-mentee pairs. It wasn't like I was necessarily teaching them anything, but kind of being the one to guide them down their path, give them suggestions for things to do, topics mm-hmm. to talk about. Uh, and that was just incredibly rewarding. So that kind of got me back on the teacher mindset. Still went abroad for a couple more years, taught English, and then was like, okay, this is this is the real deal. I'll come back and try it in the States. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And, you know, and I think sometimes uh, sometimes I think we need we feel like we need to apologize for any version of teaching that isn't telling someone something. But I think there actually are lots of ways that we can design experiences or create connections and all For that. Sure. So, as you know. I just told that story spontaneously, I thought, oh, that works pretty well, doesn't yeah. it? it that's does, kind of what right? we want teaching to look like. It's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. I love that that's a part of the origin point for you. When you think about your travels, do you feel like the um, act of getting out into the world and doing this in a meaningful way influences the way you might teach a course? Definitely. I mean, just thinking yeah. about was well, so reflecting on my own learner trajectory and then having uh, read a lot of research about study abroad and going abroad. There's a there's a actually astounding amount of research on study abroad. Um, you know, that for me was the moment that it kind of became real. There were little moments before that, like mm-hmm. going on a service learning trip to parts of Mexico and things like that. Where it's like, oh, like I, I can actually employ these skills and not just the linguistic nitty gritty, but like. I know something about your cultural background and that came up in conversation and mm-hmm. I feel, you know, like we're like making real connections. Uh, but it was definitely going abroad where that kind of cemented itself and also the just absolute necessity uh, to be able to communicate right. and not be able to just step back and whisper to your partner in English like, um, I don't understand what you just said. Can you say that again? Yeah. And then like. <laughs> or actually say it into my phone because Google will tell me what right, you right. said. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, today, honestly, I, I went abroad before the age of smartphones right um but that that has that has changed um quite a bit the way i think that students even envision themselves going abroad right like i have just this this semester talking to my new students you know what do you want to be able to do at the end of this class and a few of them said like i want to be able to have a conversation with someone without using google translate or without using my phone yeah (laughs) because that's kind of the go-to right it's like okay well this is how we'll communicate and i've had friends who don't speak any spanish come visit me when i'm abroad and have somewhat successful full-on interactions with other people just using their phone but right. that is it it has a limit right to right. how kind of deep and authentic that that connection can become right well and tell us more too about the cultural background piece because i think that's a part that phones are not so good at capturing but it's also a complicated piece of the whole interaction yeah and i mean that's something too that you know i think in traditional world language and culture education you know i mean we Anyone who has taken a a language and culture class, uh, you learn about some holidays. You learn about (laughs) a food. Right. Which is not, uh, you know, the worst information to have. But I think the way that the field is going now and certainly what I, you know, want to try to foster is more uh, this concept of intercultural competence. So Mm -hmm. understanding yourself as a cultural being why you maybe some, you know, cultural reasons, societal reasons, why I think the way I think, why I do what I do. Uh, and kind of starting from that standpoint before then thinking about other people's cultures and how society and their culture influences the way that they like will interact and speak with you. Uh, and I think even though I didn't have kind of the meta language to talk about that when I was abroad, that's kind of what happens, right? Just over the course of your But isn't that really right? where, where things go wrong or go well is, you know, when you're you import everything to this experience and that uh, can either work 
in a positive way or it can make right. it really and I think difficult even, to you know, work with Even them. just uh, raising an awareness in students that right. you need to be aware of these kind of cultural issues as you discuss things and be open to hearing other people's perspectives and opinions and not just bristle immediately when they yeah, see because, the world differently or, or, or yeah or, or see them in terms of yourself like in some like their referendum or some sort of comment on who you are so i think it's a really a powerful way of thinking about your work which is not just about conjugation and um exactly and, and holidays and all that. <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about you know how you envision your teaching and um you're part of the mastery school design team and you know in a in a year we'll be down at university circle talk a little bit about you know your your teaching. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty exciting uh, affair. That's why I took this gig. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we still have a lot of things, I think, to work out in how the the day-to-day will work. But my hope is that, you know, we'll have that sort of community-facing real-world aspect of the curriculum, whether it's through a macro or some smaller thing that we're doing with students in world language, that will serve not only to motivate students, like real, true must do motivation of mm-hmm. I need to communicate, I need to understand more about um, people from this particular group in this particular place um, and you know communicate with them or create something for them. Um, but then also have students be able to personalize or individualize whatever kind of word we want to use, especially you know the vocabulary that they, they want to use to convey things about their own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, little things that I'm trying to experiment with this this year in class have mostly to do with that, right? Like, we don't all have to learn the exact same set of words. Certainly, there's some base vocabulary that everyone needs to know. But, mm-hmm. you you know, I have a student who uh, is really, really obsessed with horse riding. She loves horse riding. It's her whole life. So let's learn a bunch of vocabulary about that. Um, right. And I will learn alongside you, potentially, because I'm don't i not an equestrian expert. Right. Um, but I think that that could be something that would be exciting in small groups to do. Uh, and then also, you know, allowing students to connect what they're doing in other, quote unquote, classes, courses, whatever they're thinking about academically. Yeah. Uh, to things that are happening in the Spanish speaking world. So that's another thing we're trying to do this year is and it's been a little difficult, especially with my younger students so far, but to get out of them, like what interests you out, you know, in other classes outside in the real in the real world uh, to try to make connections with what's happening in the Spanish speaking world to give them material, hopefully that they'll actually want to read and want to understand, right? It's one thing to say, okay, everybody, here's a news article that I pulled yesterday about, um, I don't know, like... The Brazilian rainforest. Right, right. right. (laughs) Burning burning down. Right. Um, And sure, that's going to be interesting to some students, right? I had one student in my little initial meeting say that he's all about environmentalism and he wants to, you know, study more about that in Latin America, and that's great. But I think if, you know, given the powers of the internet, uh, it's quite possible to really provide each student... um, kind of a more personalized route to learning. And for me, it's it's just mostly about motivation, right? Like that's going to make that student want to understand that text. That's going to make that student want to be able to convey the information that they need to convey to me, to their classmates. And, you know, just through research that I've done of my own with my advisor uh, in my PhD program, that like real true need to convey information that someone else actually doesn't understand, including a teacher, can be incredibly powerful in motivating students to communicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a pretty long-winded answer, but well, I'm hoping that some, all, some of those things are all yeah. kind of incorporated no, in the in the new model. Super important. Totally. And you know, part of what I what I think is so powerful in what you're talking about is that um such a big part of what we're doing is about discovery 
And that includes the discovery of what am I actually interested in, which sounds kind of dumb. Like, don't we all know what we're interested in? But I think the fact of the matter is that there might be your student who's really interested in horseback riding, and she really knows that. But the in school, I think what we're interested in is often so much constrained by, well, we're in Spanish class, and so Senor Cheadle probably wants me to be interested in Spanish things. Holidays. Holidays. <laughs> bullfighting, possibly. Right. So I think that that idea of, no, what are you actually interested in? Like, this is, it's not homework, it's not an assignment, it's not a checkbox, it's actually what interests you. Right. And at the that's same time, that's actually hard. Yeah. And at the same time, providing them with lots of examples because, it, yeah. you know, sure. They might not know. That's also part of, you know, education is, and it, is and exposing them to lots of different and things. And it could be developmentally they're not ready, or it could also be that no one's really asked them to, to really explore it. School is not really about that, right? Right. Right. And I think that's where some of the practices that we use in a lot of our classes, like News Circle, is really helpful because News Circle, like the fundamental premise. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of classes in the, you know, a lot of our pilots for the mystery school um, start with News Circle. And uh, the idea is that you find some new source to track that changes and is updated daily and you come into class and at the beginning of class, everybody circles up and the as the teacher, you say, you know, what's new or did anybody find anything interesting? And a student will say like, well, you know, there was this thing about the, you know, like this, they'll have something about a sports team or they'll have some new story about like, well, there was this thing with the Taliban and there is like a peace agreement with the Taliban. At first, often I find Hawkins students want to tell you the things that they think you want to hear. So they'll like come in with like a pre-rehearsed, like this is humanities class. So I'm going to give Ms. Griffin that humanities answer. <laughs> but then the key is to push beyond that. I think of like, no, what was actually interesting to you? So there was a great one last week in Antra with a kid who had something about the Loch Ness Monster. And it was like pretty interesting to him. And kind of cool. And so I think that that, so, so a couple people share and eventually over the course of the semester, you get to a point where students are actually having conversations with each other about things that are genuinely interesting to them and why and making connections across news stories. But I find that there's this shell that you have to break through of what I'm supposed to be interested in. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing this year that feels different than maybe you've done in the past? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think there are so far quite a few things that I'm doing that feel different. Uh, I'll just focus on maybe a couple. Uh, the first is trying to uh, have students sort of take ownership of their own learning. So one thing that we've done these first few weeks of school is I've gone through pretty uh, explicitly with them about the different types of communication according to Actful. So interpretive communication, presentational communication, interpersonal communication, and then intercultural, uh, which may seem like somewhat common day terms, but uh, I, they they weren't really aware uh, of how to sort of um, think about all the different things that one can do with language and how to use the tools uh, of language class to actually do something, right, to communicate. Um, so just going through with them different sorts of rubrics, having them realize the different kinds of communicative tasks and where those fall. Uh, and the hope is that as we move through, you know, new quote-unquote content, right, like new grammar, new vocabulary, They'll be able to keep a focus on their communicative goals and figure out how to use all these little tools to actually do something. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to create each unit with the goal uh, starting of this end goal. OK, what can you do? And then kind of having them work back and having them figure it out themselves instead of saying, OK, here are 
these grammar points and this vocabulary, right. and this is what you're going to do. And my guess is that through that utility of doing something, that's how they're acquiring all the things that we traditionally acquire during. Right. Yeah, language. it is my belief uh, and the belief of many um, sort of linguistic theorists that uh, learning and l- language learning and language use are one and the same, right? We, we learn by doing, we learn by practicing. Um, and so getting them into that mindset uh, has been, well, it's, it's in process, uh, but it's a little tricky, right? Uh, that's not how they think about learning. They think, no, no, no. Give me my grammar quiz and give me my vocab quiz. That is what learning Spanish is. That's right. You're going to tell me some things. I'm going to memorize them. I'm going to put them on a piece of paper. And that's what right. it means and to And so, you know, my goal is hopefully making them realize that, yes, you do need to memorize some of those things. But that is not the goal. That's not the end product of the class. The end product is how you take those and use them to actually communicate. Yeah. So now let's pivot a little bit. And you're on the design team for the Mastery School of Hawken. Um, what... You know, what excites you about the idea of, of being able to create this school around language and other things that you're interested in? Uh, yeah, so quite a few things. But I think in terms of language, one thing that really excites me is that I think it will, A, uh, be a great way to motivate students, right? They'll actually be able to uh, communicate with people outside of their little classroom, um, which will hopefully be motivational to them. Um, and also, I think that through this model, this mastery model, students will be able to, at their own pace, um, really feel like they are accomplishing something. I feel like all too often, at least in language classes, you, we just kind of move at this particular clop and maybe students get it, maybe they don't, and they end up learning you know, imperfect subjunctive when they can't really even just have a conversation about the weather, right? Um, and so I think that in this model, uh, if we if we sort of have patience and work with students and wait with students until they've mastered um, these basics of actually communicating uh, in all of the various ways that one communicates before moving on, I think that we will uh, help to develop students that when they leave the mastery school after four years are actually able to speak and write and listen and read at a higher level than students would otherwise because they'll be much more able to actually do. Yeah, so that's that's one thing that I'm pretty excited about. That's fantastic. I think the whole model is going to be transformative, and it's what you're doing here. But at the master school, will be taken to a, a different level, the, the the highest level where kids are doing stuff. So thank you for coming in. We now have a little insight into you uh, and the language, so we appreciate that. And uh, I'm sure we'll be hearing you again on the pod. So thanks for coming in. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much, guys. Want to thank you for listening to Redesigning High School, our podcast. Uh, want to thank Nick Fletcher, who is our editor and the guy who makes all this work. Um, if you are interested in subscribing to our podcast, please find us on iTunes. We'd love a or wherever you get your podcast, and we'd love reviews and all of that. We have a newsletter that goes out every month. You can subscribe to it by going to redesigningschool.org. Follow us on all the social media feeds and all the rest. And uh, just keep looking for more podcasts, which we're going to be coming out all year long. So thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.